Hey everybody, this is episode 136 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, joined yet again by my recent guest, James Dodds. How are you doing today, James? Good. As always, excited to be back. Excited to have you back. We are here to record part two, as promised, of our goal discussion where we were talking about reasons why people don't get their goals we, we left the last one with some more things to talk about, and we promised everybody that we would come back around, and so here we are, excited to talk to you again. We've got six more reasons we're going to cover today about why people don't get their goals, and of course, I would highly encourage you to check out episode 132 before you listen to this one, if at all possible, because I think that'll give some context on my discussion with James here today, and Regarding that context, I did actually want to follow up. We got a response from our friend Paul, who wrote back to the back and forth we had as the intro part of that discussion. And he was asking about the running industrial complex and if maybe we've gotten a little bit overboard on the amount of money we're willing to spend on this quote unquote hobby, to use his words. And so you and I went back and forth on that, and Paul gave us a response it was long and thoughtful and i don't want to get to all of it because we've got to get to our other discussion but i wanted to pull out a couple of a couple of paragraphs here and then we can quickly discuss that and then there were some other emails that i got from people asking about our prior discussion and so we'll get to those and then get to our additional six reasons why people don't get their goals but regarding paul's email i wanted to call it a couple of paragraphs here the first where he addresses my response to calling people hobby runners or hobby joggers of sorts. He says, I can see how my use of the term hobby runner may have come across as disparaging in my email. I do want to clarify that I in no way meant it to be dis- disrespectful toward the variety of runners, runners out there and their goals. I also hope that I haven't used or coined a term that will get used among the road community with air quotes and a roll of the eyes. That certainly wasn't my intention. And, to be honest, from his original tone, I didn't pick up that he was trying to disparage that group. I did respond pretty sharply towards that comment because generally I'm passionate about it. And I did have other emails come from people that said, hey, completely disagree with that term and us quote unquote hobby runners are as important as anybody. And I still stand by that statement, but good to good to see that Paul was sort of backing away from that a little bit and saying didn't mean to offend and I really truly don't think he did mean to offend he was trying to bring up a bigger point about have we gone a little bit overboard here and then he went on to say a couple of other things I'll give you this one point and then kind of a kind of a new set of points that he gave he said I agree with what I think is one of the rogue one of rogue's foundational principles that runners of all shapes and sizes and speeds may quantitative may be quantitatively different but are qualitatively very similar. They're all putting in the work and experiencing the same types of physical and emotional highs and lows that go with that. I think this point is also one of the basic premises of many of your more recent interviews with elite athletes, that they experience the same same things we experience as runners. We're more like them than we may think. So he goes on to basically agree with my points there. And then he has a, a, a follow-on discussion point about the topic of money and the sport. And he says, regarding money and 
the sport, one of the issues that I feel is relevant is that of inclusiveness versus exclusiveness. The simplicity of running and the inherent low cost of running makes it available to literally everyone. Too much emphasis on buying running-related products and services would seem to increase barriers to the sport. I know you're a running-based company that sells products and services, but from what I can tell, you're selling things of value. Your podcast training group is the only coaching service I've ever realistically considered buying. You're also providing a lot more than that. For example, your knowledge and expertise via the podcast. Someone living in the middle of North Dakota without access to a recovery lab or other such services should not feel that he can't or she can't maximize his or her potential and be a running badass without those things or without having access to those things. He says, I know you're not suggesting that this is the case and I apologize if I'm making this money thing too big of an issue. So with that excerpt, any further comments, Mr. Dodds? No, I mean, I get, that's why I started with, I'd love to have a beer with them. Um, and it wasn't just me placating or anything. It, it, I was serious. Um, I, there, there's a way you talk one-on-one versus the way you talk to a crowd. So I think you and I both felt the instinct to um, protect all listeners against that word hobby. Um, but again, I would have. it turns out he doesn't live here, so we can't go get a beer. But when he said uh, running industrial complex, that started with the term, I, I forget the president, um, but military industrial complex and the idea of simply like we're sending troops all around the world. We've got an industry built out of this. We all want our troops to come home and to have world peace, but you bring them all home tomorrow and what are they going to do? I mean, like that, that, there's a money-making machine and I'm the first person to typically go off when it comes to health, like the health industry, it's a health industrial complex, like what we have to pay just to be alive in the United States and protect our health, whether it be insurance or actually going to the um, hospital itself. And then we have an educational industrial complex. So yes, almost all businesses we are, are offering start out with a great intention and then things grow up around them. But as I said last time, you got to take the good with the bad. Like I'm not going to stop going um, to the hospital when I'm sick or in need. Uh, but do I think it's become like a three-headed monster that wants to take my money? Yeah, both are true. Um, two in the same. Uh, so yeah, I gave him the benefit of the doubt as a person, but I think we had to address the public and how that could be misperceived. Um, so for sure. And I do, yeah, as you say, I think both things can exist. People can take advantage of the resources they have access to if they happen to live in a place like Austin, if they so choose, and that seems to help them, but they can also choose not to and be a quote-unquote running purist who is just focused on sleep, running easy when they should, doing workouts when they should, and not necessarily spending the extra money on massage, foam rollers, generator lab, cryo, whatever it may be, and to each their own on whichever path they choose. So thank you, Paul, for the debate. Paul does listen to us from Germany. So shout out to him. He's an American living in Germany. So thanks to Paul for the discussion and debate. We highly appreciate it. And if you ever are in Austin, do take us up on coming for that beer. All right. So a couple of other questions from our listeners that were prompted by the goal setting or the goal discussion we had last time. This one comes from a rogue that you and I would both know, but I won't, I won't give his name so as he doesn't get thrown on the bus if he <laughs> didn't want to be with this question. But he says, uh, 
James brought up this idea that you only have to suffer for 30 minutes to an hour of the marathon of the marathon. So that's how he mentally prepared going in. I feel like that's where I was derailed at my last marathon. I was ready to work at mile 20 and go fight over the final 10 K. The problem was that it was hard before mile 10 and I wasn't ready for that at all. Somehow I was convinced going in that it would feel easy running my pace for the first 20 not a big deal. I just feel like I need to be mentally dialed in and ready to work from the moment the alarm goes off. Yeah, that's a uh, a great response. Um, and it kind of has to do with the way I go about framing things. But I, I guess what I would use, so I, I'm very compartmentalized in my race strategy. So on one hand, I do, I, I do think you have to get your mind set. Uh, I think you got to have your mindset, you know, when you start out in your season, you've got to carry that attitude and swagger all season long. Then you have to have that attitude when you get on the plane and fly to the race or when you get out of bed that morning and go to the race. So, yes, you have to have like that warrior like mentality. But I also use that as a little bit of a strategy. If I am hurting early on, I know there's no hope. I mean, you can't physically suffer at mile two and expect to somehow hold that same given pace at mile 26. So it's also a way of, it's almost like an indicator for me where I can work backwards and say, like, if it doesn't feel smooth, calm, and rhythmic, even though my mind might be in that warrior mindset of today I'm here, I'm focused, I'm ready to throw down, um, I've learned that I've expended energy. A lot of that came actually from Meb's book, uh, Run to Win. And I remember him talking about being, so trained up uh, for one of his races. It was one of the fittest he had ever gone into race weekend. But on the airplane ride, he found his knuckles turning white because he'd be gripping the um, like the, the, the handle of the seat because he was just so amped up. And so while, yes, you have to have uh, this mindset that's focused, and we're going to get into this in other layers of the conversation today, but the mind is a funny thing. Um, we got to be amped up and ready for war almost but we also got to find a way to calm ourselves down i've seen people on the start line where they're jumping up and down and beating their chest and they're like yeah yeah we're about to go get this race and they take off like a rocket and it's like that's just not going to be sustainable um so i don't know if i ramble too much there but it <laughs> to me it's a way of regulating my brain and saying like listen you're, you're going to the dark places in that last hour and it doesn't mean i'm not focused at mile one but i'm actually trying to use calming techniques to start off so that i can actually sustain that like fight in the last hour be as calm as a tibetan monk yeah yeah i do think that's an important point that when things go wrong early, it's a totally different mindset. It happened to me in, I did the Bryan College Station Marathon. I think it was in December of 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. And got a PR that day. Perfect weather. It was cold. It was it was a good day. It was, it was primed for PR kind of situation in December in Texas. And I remember coming through mile four or five and seeing Steve, who was my coach at the time. And I just felt terrible, you know, had, had worked down to marathon pace over the first three, four miles, but got to it. And it was feeling hard, way too hard at that stage. And afterwards, Steve would tell me that I looked like shit. 
<laughs> and that's how I felt. And so I, I, I was kind of freaking out. Like, if it feels this way now, there's no way I'm going to make this for 26.2 miles. So from that point, mile five until what well, ended up shifting, it ended up shifting for me about mile eight was I just went into meditation mode. And I do this thing sometime in races where I'll close my eyes on straightaways and just focus on my breathing and, you know, make sure I have a clear road ahead and just, you know, run in a straight line with my eyes closed and kind of focus on my breathing, trying to get my heart rate under control, using my mind and just kind of went into a moving meditation and gradually over the course of that next three miles, suddenly marathon pace started to feel smooth again and got to a place where it felt easy and comfortable and mile eight till the end I pretty much crushed it you know th there were no bigger battles than what I had already faced early on in that race and but it was a completely different mentality than if pain came at mile 23 when it's time to buckle down and and grit and bear it and kind of gets back to this concept I talked to runners about when when in race planning in talking about having mantras for the race, I like to talk about two kinds. One is rhythm mantras for the first 20 miles, you know, because the first 20 miles is all about finding a rhythm, making it feel as smooth, relaxed, and easy as possible. And then I talk about fight mantras for the final six when it's time to go to battle, grit and bear it, fight through that pain that usually comes. And those are two very different modes of operating. And so I think that's the thing here to recognize is that yeah it is a little different mentality and that's okay now there may be some situations where you go into that zen mode and you just never feel good i mean it could have happened to me on that day where i could have gotten to mile 12 or 15 and still never felt well sometimes you're just having one of those days and that sucks frankly but you know, you still have to try to your best, to the best of your ability to, to play that Zen card versus going into the, the battle mode too early. All right, so that's one. Then I wanted to get to a couple of others here. We had another email here from Michael. He says, are y'all planning on doing a podcast training group with a target race in January? He's doing Houston Marathon. And the answer, Michael, is yes. You can still sign up with us and do Houston. We do have a few people in the group already doing that. So email me again, Chris at Rogue Running, if you want to get signed up there. You can go on our website and do it. But he's asking about goal setting for his first marathon. And this is a more specific question. He says, I've listened to a lot of your podcast episodes, including number 77, training paces and goal times and have set a goal of under four hours for the Houston marathon. I just don't know if this is the right goal for me. He gives a little bit of a background. I'm a 28 year old male, former lacrosse player, college lacrosse player. While I have plenty of experience running while playing sports, I've never run any race longer than a 5k before I started training this past January Thankfully, I've fallen in love with running and the training process. I've been building my weekly mileage over the past few months, and I'm currently running about 25 miles per week. I plan on continuing to slowly increase the mileage. I'm also doing strength training twice a week. 
I've used McMillan's calculator and recent 5K and two-mile runs. The calculator predicts my marathon finish time around four hours and 30 minutes, depending on which run I use. I decided on, given that the runs were in the Texas heat and humidity and the fact that I'm still seven months away, I've decided on a sub-four-hour goal and my way off here. He says, don't be afraid to shatter this goal if I'm completely off. I know that I may need to adjust this goal as the race gets closer and I get further into training. What do you think? I mean, I think all those details matter. Um, so whatever those extra details were, I'd like to know them. The first conversation I'd have with an athlete is, um, I like the sound of a college lacrosse player. I know there's an aerobic foundation. Last week we talked about a body of work in six to eight years, but one thing I didn't mention is that Brian Ward also grew up a soccer player. Uh, all his life since he was a little kid and so you have like an aerobic foundation you've got capillaries in your legs that you've built out uh, which are just extra ways to get oxygen to the working muscles so um, having that background is going to help them I'd want to know about current fitness too was it like hardcore at lacrosse and then you know I played rugby in college right out of college gained a ton of weight Um, so you know I'd want to know about current fitness as well as that historical piece i'd have him do you know some time trials throughout the season i like that he has the 5k data point um but yeah the 25 miles a week we would definitely have to ramp um i'd want to know how many times a week he's running too i i have a personal philosophy that i say i talk to every runner about but because we chose as humans to live in a seven day world um four days a week matters to me Um, if someone wants to hit a specific marathon goal, I want to get them running minimum four times a week, um, because it's teaching the body that we're going to run more often than we're not. So I'd get them to four times a week. Um, that mileage at 25 a week, um, but executing 26 in one day, I know he said he's going to grow it and ramp it. Um, I would want to help him ramp. The great news is that it's June and he's not racing till January. So there's plenty of time uh, for him to build up. I would put him in a stretch at one point, probably like a six-week window, where I just had him running 16 to 18 milers, 16, 18, 16, 18, 16, 18, before I got him up to the 20s. Um, So I'd put him in a holding pattern probably, you know, in that October window just for his body to readjust and think, wow, we run 16 to 18 on Saturdays. That's what we do. And that's assuming no injuries or anything else came up. So that's one where I really need to, I, 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 re, I, I can't give it a generic answer because he's saying, can I run four hours? And there's so much missing about what I know about him. But those are some of the factors I'd go through in a one-on-one conversation. Uh, frequency of running, total weekly mileage, how his body responds both to the ramp and then how his body might respond to a couple prep races. I'd love to see a 10 miler even give him a um, 10 mile race. And if he's local at all, if he's racing Houston, perhaps he could come do the run for the water. The timing would be great. And then we could use that 10, that run for the water 10 miler as a great like uh, indicator for what to maybe expect in those last three months of training. There's also a half marathon in Houston that weekend before that, the last weekend in October, which would be, another potential prep race if he's if he actually is in Houston. I don't know where he's hailing from. I, my answer would be that a time goal at this point isn't productive. Yeah, I don't I don't know if he can run sub 4. No idea. I mean, even if I knew all those details you said, I still wouldn't know because he just doesn't have enough data points to tell us. So for me, I would say Let's focus on process goals for right now and get more information so that we can then dial in. I usually have two de facto goals for people 
when they're doing their first marathon. One is to finish, obviously, to get it done. The second is to finish and want to do another one. And usually, for me, that means finish strongly. Have a have a plan where you're conservative relative to your potential, perhaps, so that you can hopefully finish the last three to four miles. Even if you're not getting faster, feeling strong and feeling like when you got done that you left a little bit on the table so that you want to do another one. And so I'll always have a target or, or develop a target time with a runner doing their first marathon but we kind of pencil that in and we develop a plan ideally that's conservative enough to allow them to finish strongly and then and then get greedy on the next one and so i would just push him to focus on the process for now like let's get you in the podcast training group let's get you in a mileage build that makes sense let's see how your body responds to that let's do a couple prep races like that houston half if you're in houston or wherever you may be or here in Austin at Run for the Water, let's do some prep races to figure out some more data points at longer distances, which will help us triangulate around what's possible. Because right now we just don't know enough. And I think it's dangerous to pick a random arbitrary sub four hour goal when you could either be setting yourself up for failure or potentially undershooting the mark. I mean, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I had somebody come to me so probably five or six years ago, who said he would run a two-hour half at Austin. And the guy said, hey, I'm doing another half in six months. I just want to beat that time. I said, awesome. But I didn't know anything about him. We focused on the process. He ended up running a 129 <laughs> six months later <laughs> because wow. he did everything he was supposed to do, and he just had the talent, and he responded favorably and was smart about it along the way. And... If we had said, you know, running 155 was the goal and kind of arbitrarily stuck there, we would have missed the boat completely. But instead, we focused on the process and adapted as we went. And again, results not typical there, but you just never know, right? So I think sometimes those time goals can be as limiting as they are perhaps inaccurate on the other side. Any final thoughts for, for yeah, Michael? Yeah, no, I love it. You, I mean, just, uh, it reminded me of my first marathon experience, and I agree. Um, I thought about that after I stopped talking. Just finishing is the primary goal. It's almost just acquainting with, uh, getting your getting yourself acquainted with just how bad it hurts. I mean, you think you know what the wall's going to feel like, and you hear all these people talk about the wall, um, but after your first one, you're like, oh, that's the wall. And I remember walking at mile 23 of my first marathon, and my best friend came out to support me, and he was going to jog the last three miles and he was utterly like frustrated and disappointed with me. And I couldn't describe to him why I was walking. But in his mind, he was looking at it mathematically saying, dude, you have three miles. Why would you run 23 and then you would walk in the last three? It just makes no sense. Come on. And he was trying to use typical motivating factors like, come on, it's only three. You've done, you know, seven times that already. Come on. And it, I was just like. I can't talk to you right now. And and then I was feeling guilty that he came out. And so, it, yeah, it, it just gets you acquainted with just how bad it hurts. And um, I love that you said finishing wanting a second one because my uncle was there too. And when I got across the line, he said, would you do another one? I was like, I have to. I've got a lot to redeem out there. He goes, great sign. That's a great sign. We're done with this conversation. Perfect. All right, I got one more, which is not – directly related to our last discussion but i think actually has a, a way to weave in and then we'll get to our next six reasons this comes from matt who actually trains with us in australia in our podcast training group so that's pretty cool he represents the down under 
within that virtual community. And he says, it's interesting that when people find out I'm a runner, they generally start with one of two lines of conversation. One, I can't run because dot, 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 insert reasons here, right? Or two, they want to talk about their running or when they used to run. They never talk about professional running, which is different to almost every other sport I know. The third question is always the same for both group for both groups. So have you run a marathon? Please let me be saved from this one after August was when he's actually doing his first marathon training with us. It doesn't matter how fast I am or good I am in my age group. I haven't run a marathon. Sigh. The couch to 5K concept is interesting, but you're already dealing with a group that has decided to make a change. Why is running so unappealing is his question. Oh, it's a great one. A part of me just wants to relate to him and be like, I get the same questions too, or the same line of discussion too. Um, well, it's painful. It's, um, it's, you know, I always believe like the reason why something like a marathon is glorious is precisely because it hurts, because it's uncomfortable. And so it, it, it's somewhat odd as a runner to sit in those conversations and not be snippy back because, you know, every one of us that have completed a marathon went through those stages little by little, one step at a time where it was like, yeah, of course it hurts. Of course it sucks. Of course it's tired. It, it's, it's us stretching um, status quo, what our body is currently used to. We're providing a stimulus or said better, a stressor. Um, so we're, we're actually saying like, hey, I'm going to stress my body and stress my muscles so that it gets better. Um, and while people love quoting the idea of every day, I want to be a little bit better than my former self. Um, those, those sell great books because, or, or those kind of books sell really well because everyone needs that freaking reminder. Like it's it, homeostasis is what the body seeks. It wants to say, this is what I am. Okay. This is normal. How do I hold? How do I hold right here? And so it's natural that the psyche instantly says, oh, you're doing something that I'm not doing. Um, here's why I can't do it or why I don't do it. Or um, maybe it wakes up like a, a slight little challenge inside them. And not, not that the runner is trying to do that. It's just natural in the human psyche to instantly respond with like, oh man, I remember thinking I could go out and do that or should do that or whatever it may be. And just didn't want to deal with, um, you know, the discomfort. Uh, and we're going to get into some of this stuff later, but it's like, it is an uncomfortable event and activity and the joy of it, the, the runner's high during the run doesn't come until like the other side of training. You, you, you know, you, like that's why they're so rewarding. That's why they be, it becomes addicting, whether running a faster time or just running more marathons. Either one, um, we who live it regularly um, do it because it's that constant reminder of I just challenged myself again. Like I embrace challenge. I take it on. And, and it's, it's not like we're thinking, oh, I'm better than someone else. It's just like I want to know I'm being honest with myself and putting a challenge in front of me. Um, and maybe that's why it wakes up those lines of conversation from other people. Yeah, it's interesting. On one hand... I think that well, running is appealing, but I'm also living in a very, very biased <laughs> world. And so I think part of this is actually we, we don't necessarily give running enough credit. I mean, if you look at participation in terms of just running as an activity or form of exercise, whether you do races or not, 
it's got to be one of the biggest, right? So people are out there doing it, but the way it's quote unquote sold or framed isn't very sexy. And I think that's where it's, it, it has appeal issues, both at the quote unquote hobby runner level, like Paul talked about, but also at the elite level because it's sold as something that is punishment you know, for kids that are doing sports is a solo pursuit, not actually a group pursuit. It's something that people see as boring because, because we don't, we collectively don't do a good job showing people the variety and, and the interesting elements you can add to it to make it fun and exciting. And so I think it comes down to just bad marketing <laughs> with you know with a capital m from from all sides all from all things all related parties and i do think that's part of the reason why people like this podcast is because i aspire to not only tell the stories of the sport to make it interesting but also to show people that it can be fun and sexy if you're willing to put in the work and that's what you mentioned which is that a lot of people aren't willing to put in the work and therefore they don't get access to the cool part because they're still in the crappy part that first six to eight weeks of just getting in the routine which sucks until you finally hit your stride a little bit with your training and most people don't get over that hump so it's all of those things but it is an interesting question with from matt and i would say matt keep doing you you'll crush that first marathon in august and then there will be more after that, and who the hell cares what everybody else thinks, right? Yeah. You know, I'd say your answer is I, w- I would almost bucket you under the natural runner but it, or just someone who, like, stayed with it. Um, because I, on one hand, I agree with you. Um, you know, I watch kids, and not only do kids seem to really enjoy running, parents are telling their kids to slow down all the time or stop running. Uh, kids sort of naturally ga- gravitate towards just running towards things, and, and then their form is also really great. So while it could be bad marketing, it's also like lifestyle, the way our society has evolved. And so if you if, if you stopped running at a certain age or you got mad at your coach because they punished you with running, like you were saying, um, and you lost it somewhere along the way, then co- re-entering is, it's that re-entry to the act of running um, that maybe is the way I responded the way I did because uh, I, I can't say it was appealing in the beginning. And I first fell in love with the idea that I just got it done. And we're talking just two miles. I was like, I went out to a, a fire hydrant that was about a mile from my apartment and then we jogged back. And I was like, two miles, I did it. So at first, the only thing I loved about it was the, knowing that I did it. And then as my volume went up, I got to where shorter runs, I could actually enjoy it a little bit during the run. And there was just a whole evolution of starting to enjoy it and then it becoming appealing. And now I'm just on another side where, you know, yeah, I can talk about beautiful runs, amazing runs, conversations I've had on runs. But I feel like, gosh, it took a long time before the actual physical act of running was appealing or love for me. I'm in the same place. I mean, I started running as a competitive outlet. I didn't like the activity, but if I had a race to sign up for, a race to do, I could compete with myself, I would do it for that reason. But then when I didn't have a race, I didn't do it. And it wasn't until much later that I actually just fell in love with the activity, and so now I could do it whether I have a race or not and enjoy it. That's not to say that I don't like to mix it up 
as I've done. But I get I get that. I get where you're coming from with that. All right, let's transition now. Thanks to to those of you who lobbed in those comments and questions. Appreciate it. Let's talk about the six more reasons why runners don't get their goals. And I think we're going to have some fun philosophical debate with a few of these. We went ahead and listed out our remaining six so that we could do a little bit of planning. And so we won't do it volleyball style like we did last time. But I will throw the first one to you, James, which is talking about the wrong goal. So part of the reason why people don't get their goals is because they have the wrong goal. So how would you tee up that one? Yeah, so when I think about the wrong goal, um, I, I thought about this last week when when you were talking about um, the Boston qualif- qualifier being a very noble goal. Um, on one hand, I agree, actually. It's still my, I call it the common man Olympics. That's I want to be Q one day. I am very far away from it. Um, but in some ways, like while, it, while it's like on the group level for all runners, a very noble goal, it's not in that regard personal. And so sometimes athletes show up with the mindset of like, hey, I want to get into marathoning. Um, just like back to this, this last question of like, why do I have to run a marathon to be considered a runner? Well, it's because we've heard about enough people. Someone has a cousin or an uncle or a colleague that's run a marathon at this point. And so that became like the, you know, the standard. And so then I see athletes now too, that get into running marathons. They're thinking, I want to qualify for Boston because they've had a cousin, you know, a colleague or a friend that is qualified for Boston. And so all of a sudden it's like, that's the standard. I want to go for that, but it may not be personal. And that's why I asked the questions earlier about the training and is four hours good for the, the first guy that wrote the, um, the question, because I, I would say the, uh, the goal's got to be, um, built around where you're currently at as well as where you want to go. It's great to have a big long-term goal. Um, but I, I've seen this in other people and I've also felt it in my own life. I believe that when your goals in life, if, if your ultimate goal, the gap between that and your present and current reality is too great, it becomes like an abyss and you just fall in it. And, and staying motivated along the way to get there is just going to become incredibly dif- difficult. So on one hand, we talked about the long-term um, body of work last week, but in in within the context of this response, I would also say, how important it is um, to have short-term goals as well and that they be based on a mix of both where you want to go long-term and your current fitness. And I would make them very personal. I, I have a rule of thumb and it's always, uh, I, don't want to, I don't know a better term than dangerous, but it's kind of dangerous to always throw out these rules of thumb because then people are like, oh, that's the formula. And, and it, it, there's a variety of things that can impact this. But I typically look at someone's half marathon time I double it and I add 10 minutes for a marathon goal time. So I had someone recently tell me that they ran a 137 half. They read a book um, by a very inspiring runner and they want to train for their first marathon and break three hours and qualify for Boston. And my initial knee-jerk gut reaction, there's a possibility that could be that person's right goal and a great goal. My initial instinct right down from my stomach was this is the wrong goal because I would just say 137 times 2, that's 314, right? 314 plus 10, 
that at least sets a window for me. I'm thinking 324. So maybe it's not too far off, but still, I'm like, that 24-minute gap would mean you would have to be my perfect athlete who would do everything I said, um, trained really high mileage. Your body did not get broken, broke down and um, set back within the training season itself because when we start throwing all of that at you, mileage and speed, there's a chance your body's going to break down and you would show up on race day and it would still be really hard. So... I don't think that's the right goal for that person. And that, that's actually really hard for me to say as a coach. I love that the guy that asked the four-hour question, he was like, shoot me down if it's not the right one because um, that gives me permission, you know, and, and, and I love that. But uh, the real point here is that um, not having the right goal is trying to loop it back into practical is just um, taking into consideration of where you're currently at, um, expecting improvement, expecting big things for yourself, but incremental improvements and um, realistic improvements without shattering that dream of, yes, you can reach for the stars, but, you know, you move a mountain one rock at a time. Before we, before I react to that, what do you tell somebody who comes at you like that? I don't tell them right away. I tell them that I love that they're ambitious. I, I, I'll literally, because I'm always like, Every one of us as a coach has a default, right? I my default is to protect. I'm always going to protect um, the human in front of me. I'm all that 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 is my like DNA. I, I want to change it about myself. That is just how I operate, though. So I'd never want to kill someone's passion. <clears throat> but I say I love that you're ambitious. But we're going to have to work really hard toward, towards that, and I'd like to revisit appropriate time goals in a month from now because I want to find out just how serious they are first. And if they can show up and handle like 50 mile weeks and they're busting their ass and they're going through all the, if, if I'm observing all these great details, I'm like, well, man, let's, maybe I tell them, hey, don't be disappointed if you run 310, but three to 310 is a great window. But if I don't even see that in the first window, now I can appeal to, instead of just saying like, I don't know you that well, um, you're a big dreamer, I've been around the block and I'm a cynic now and so I'm just going to shoot your down goal, uh, shoot down your goal. If I get myself a month of observation, now I can work my way in there safely and delicately and say, hey, like based on the last four weeks of like mode of operation, um, it's going to be really hard to to achieve what you're talking about. And and I'm seeing you, you know, I know your hope is to run four, but you're only executing three and your goal so big. I'd 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 expect that of some someone running six. I can I can refer to data points that aren't like, dude, you're just never going to get it. <laughs> you know, um, so that may sound um, a little indirect, but that's how I go about it. I, I, I want to get other observation points so I can delicately touch on it. Which is fair. Do you just come at them? Well, no, I mean, I don't I don't come hard, but I, I think I would say something to the effect of based on your half marathon time that that's going to be a real challenge. You know, I, I don't know whether or not you can get there. Because I don't know enough about you and I want to, as you said, focus on the process first to see where you go. But I just want to let you know, setting you up from the beginning, that may be too much for this first cycle. We may need to shoot for that after a couple cycles or after, you know, in your second cycle. So I think I would at least lay that out for them, not trying to squash them completely, but just saying, look, if you're going to get that goal, it's going to be a big ask on this first cycle. So that at least they have that that moment where they realize the stakes, right? 
versus perhaps being a little soft and them going, you know, walking away thinking they can casually approach it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that you're soft, James. <laughs> no, I, I am, and my athletes know it. <laughs> but it get, but back to a bigger response. So a couple things about wrong goal. I do think it manifests in two forms. One is, in the form related to what I talked about last time, which is that if they have a goal and they don't know why they have that goal. So I think there could be realistic goals that they just don't know the reasons for it, and it may be the wrong thing. It's interesting. I just had a conversation with a runner that I coach here in Austin, and she was inspired by our last episode to to kind of talk about or think about her purpose. She's running a New York marathon in November. And to this point, and she's run one other marathon. To this point, we had sort of said, hey, New York is going to be just an experience kind of race. You know, that's one that you don't want to have a time goal associated with. Just go experience New York. We'll have a plan eventually based on your fitness, but we're not going to be too aggressive with our time goal. And she came back after our episode. She said, you know what? I don't know that that's very motivating for me. So I want to have a goal that's a little more rigorous. And she threw out a, a time goal. And she said, hey, do you think that's reasonable? And I wrote back and I said, let's talk about it in person. And I want to know why you want that specific number. And so she came here we met one-on-one -on -one. she had done all of her homework she had a list of like eight or nine things of why she wanted this thing and what I figured out in asking her questions was that the time actually wasn't really relevant she didn't have a reason for wanting a certain time she had a lot of reasons for wanting something from the race but she didn't have a reason for that time that I could really tie back directly so we ended up migrating to a a goal that was a little bit more or a purpose that was a little bit more linked to how she would run the race and not a specific time. And it was going to be more about she wanted to really test herself and see where her limits were in this race. And in reality, I think the time she said actually might have been soft. And so framing it differently actually changes some decisions we're going to make about how she's going to train, how she's going to approach that race that might actually be a little more aggressive and rigorous than this time goal that she had just kind of arbitrarily thrown out, ar arbitrarily thrown out there. So in that case, she came to me with the wrong goal, but it was realistic. It was almost too realistic, and we kind of morphed it to a little bit more qualitative statement that I think is actually closer to her purpose than the time goal that she had thrown out there. So that's, I think, a way a wrong goal can manifest too, which may or may not be related to this concept of realism. On the realism side, I completely agree with you, but it kind of goes back for me to, there's two levels of realism, right? There's, there's realism in terms of, I can get this goal, I just need more time. So some people pick a goal that's arbitrarily too fast. You know, it's like, I can't get that. He, you're, the athlete you're talking about can't get the sub three. 
this time, but they could get it maybe in two or three cycles if they just had a realistic timeline. So that's one way it can manifest. Another way is it's just not realistic at all. I mean, I brought this up in an episode uh, with Sasha Golish, episode 131, where I said, if I went and said, hey, I want to run a 215 marathon, that's just unrealistic, period. <laughs> like, I don't care how long, <laughs> how long I had, I wouldn't run that at 40 years old and having only run a 245 marathon with three kids and a lot of other things going on where I can't commit myself 100% to that life. So that's just unrealistic, period, regardless of the time I have. Although I did have one person say they think I should go for that goal, which I appreciate, but not going to happen. But anyway, and that's the one, that's the goal, the kind of realism goal that I struggle with a little bit more. It's like, how do you tell a runner that they're never going to get there ever? I think it's actually pretty rare that that happens because most of the time people approach you with something that at some level they know is possible. But I think there are occasionally those situations. And I can think of one now, which I won't give any specifics on. I can think of one now where I would just say, that's probably never going to happen. Now that I've never been able to tell anybody. That's a tougher conversation. But... The point is still there, which is you got to have the right goal, at least the right realistic goal with the right timeline and also make sure it's tied to a purpose that matters in order to get to get there, I think. Yeah, um, there's a couple things I want to respond to that I think I can loop into some of our other uh, bullet points that I know are coming. But for now, what I want to reemphasize is that's why it's important to actually sit down and think about your why. Like, don't give the knee-jerk reaction, but carve out 30 minutes alone because it sounds like she put in the time to really get in touch with her why, and she uncovered another layer within herself. Um, And so it doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out, dramatic process. It's just giving yourself that space to sit down, whether with a journal or a friend or your own thoughts, and just really try to, like, use the Socratic method on yourself and say, I want this, but why? Well... I think it's because of X. Well, why X? And then try to dig in a little deeper because what I love about that is she uncovered a layer of the onion that like just didn't manifest itself, even though she came in motivated. She was like, Chris, that's not enough for me. I want to target. Um, But because of that due diligence and and wrestling with that why that you push runners towards, um, I just love that she uncovered another layer of herself. Yeah, and I think we got to a more aggressive place, which colors the whole experience in a different way. All right, so that was the first reason in this episode. Second, mixed priorities. Ah, so mixed priorities. This is one that I almost touched on where you were talking about, like, father, husband, uh, business owner. So on one hand, it can be that, you know, people don't reach their goals because, uh, you know, they set the goal. And in this sense, this is almost like where my brain can, um, the way my brain works, if, if other Others are operating this way. When we're on the topic of running, hell yeah, I want to go sub three and I want to qualify for Boston. Like if I am just having a running talk and running only, um, then yes, I want that big audacious goal. Like I want to go for it. Um, But I also want to incrementally improve my income year over year. 
And I also want to be rich in what I would call social capital. My friends are very important to me. My network is very important to me. So time spent with other people in my life, um, that's a limiting factor. I'm just, there's just times I'm not, there, there are things, there are times and days I won't be able to devote completely to running and doing second workouts and um, sleeping in a recovery tent and all of that, that I'll watch, you know, when we had the, um, you know, the post-collegiate team here, you, you could see these guys uh, putting in a lot more hours, whether it be sleeping in that tent or doing the extra workouts, um, because that was their one and only primary focus. So a lot of times it, it, it takes even a while as a coach for me to realize this, but I'll have an athlete that when they're talking to me, they're so devoted to that goal. And I'm like, I, this person is motivated. This is priority one, but come to find out, no, it's actually priority five. Like, they had like these four other priorities that I may not have caught in the first 90 days of conversation that, that were actually, you know, big factors in their life. And so it's that age old, something's got to give. And I think the athlete needs to be honest, both with themselves and with their coach about um, where this goal itself ranks on the priority list. And, and for some, it really is number one. I'm not saying uh, this is back to last week or, um, or a couple weeks ago now. Um, find out what bucket you're in. And for some people, they might be in this bucket of, you got a lot going on. So when you talk running, number one goal, but you also got a, like a weight room goal where you want to bench a certain amount and you've got that like financial goal at work. And when you start spreading your brain and your body across all those different priorities, um, something's got to give. One quick digression that I just thought about on our last, the, the last wrong goal topic. The runner I referred to that, I don't think realistically you could get the goal that they told me is not someone I currently coach. So I just want to make sure that's clear so that all my runners listening to this aren't sitting here thinking, damn, am I the one? <laughs> right? <laughs> they can't <laughs> get doing the a little damage control. Yeah, just right doing a little now. damage control there. <laughs> but anyway, on this, a couple, couple things. One is I think mixed priorities, kind of getting back to the wrong goal, can come in the form of mixed goal priorities. You know, I've had somebody come to me and say, hey, I want to run 100 miler this year, and I also want to run this time in the marathon. And the answer is, I'm sorry, you can't do both. If you're going to successfully accomplish one or the other, you got to pick one for now. It's not to say you can't get to both at some point, but we're not going to be able to get both done this year. So that's one place where I do think mixed priorities can come is when people have too many goals that have competing interests, so to speak. Second thing is mixed priorities... And I, I want to talk about it in the context of seasons of life. You know, I think anybody who's committed to running for a long for the long term can understand that there are seasons for being a little more rigorous, and there are seasons when maybe you can't be. Just recently, I had a one-on-one with with an athlete who was talking about a career transition, and she was saying, "Look, I'm in this career tr- career transition. I need to adjust a little bit in this next season while I'm making this transition." I still want to run this race. I still want to try to do the best I can, but I need to adjust my training a little bit in order to make this all fit together so that it's not too much for me. And so we made some adjustments, backed her down a little bit on mileage, developed what I call safety valves where, you know, if she feels the pressure building too much, you know, she's got three different safety valves she can pull in her training to back down three different things in order to try to balance it all. And if that works, great. If it doesn't, you know, if you only need one safety valve, great. 
If you need two, pull all. You know, pull two. If you need three, pull three. And if you still need more, let's talk about it then. And so her goal is still to do well this season, but it's a little bit shifted, and she recognized it needed to be because of that outside stress. And that's completely okay. There are seasons where that's completely okay. So when we throw mixed priorities at people, it's not to say, oh, you're, you know, you're just, you have your priorities wrong. It's just to say that it's okay and normal for them to shift and change and evolve. You know, I can talk about when I had my first kid, I didn't run for nine months. (laughs) I mean, running went completely out the window. That's the longest I've ever not run since I started running 20, almost 20 years ago. But you know, kid number one was a priority and I wanted to make sure you chose the right priority. Yeah. That I was present for both my son and my wife at that time. And that was okay. But obviously I wasn't going to be PRing in the marathon during that season. So I think that's one thing to just recognize is that it's okay to have those seasons. Now there's a difference between excuses and seasons as I've talked about before, where at a time I was using, I think, having three kids and coaching and all these things as an excuse not to be my best self when I knew really I could do it all if I was just committed to the little details of training. I think that's a fine nuance that people have to sort out for themselves. But it's completely okay if you have a season where you can't be as committed to that A goal as you would like. And then the next season you might be. Yeah, just a couple of reactions. It's when you talk, it just, and I know this is happening with you too. It's like you get flooded with memories, whether conversations with athletes or memories about yourself. But a couple of things came to mind. I'm actually still dealing with that right now. Um, uh, my target goal weight for by Christmas of this year will be 175 pounds. And I care more about that than my time goal. But typically when I'm training, I'm always talking about my time goals and, you know, or I'm moving towards that. I just had my goal setting conversation, et cetera. Um, So in truth, goal one is still not even time related for me. Like I'm sitting here talking about this as a concept and it's still going on in my own brain. And what that triggered was, yeah, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of athletes come to the table wanting to lose weight and run faster. And while on one hand they go hand in hand, I've seen some athletes be disappointed because their weight will actually like somewhat increase before the race or just hold steady, which is a, uh, ironic phenomenon or a counterintuitive phenomenon, but it happens. And it's also rooted in, um, performance. Like if you're cutting calories or you're changing up your diet, it's harder to perform in the given workouts. And so those mixed goals and variables within the training of itself can cause setbacks or potentially ultimately result in not hitting one goal versus the other. And, there's one athlete I can picture who got into CrossFit one year and I think was a little more dedicated to that piece. And when she was done with the season, she looked like the fittest human on the entire team. I was so proud of what she had done. It was almost like she completely reconstructed her body, but her actual marathon time, her finishing time was not what she wanted. And now I remember trying to have that conversation. I met up with her after the race and had that conversation. It was like, you got a lot of wins this season. But it seems like your um, effort and intention was mixed there. And it's going to be hard to... Steve always used to say, you can't effectively train two energy systems at once. Um, So to get that CrossFitter's physique and look like a world-class athlete when someone's just passing you on the street as a stranger, you know, she got that. But at the cost of 
the actual aerobic endurance and speed that she might have been able to bring to the marathon itself. All right, let's go to, to the number three in this episode. This one I'll start with. And it's a little bit more tactical related to training itself, but it's when willing when people aren't willing to do the supplemental work outside of the running to get their goals. It's about the running, but it's also about the 1% as we like to call them. Those are little extras that you need to do to either stay healthy, to be strong, to do what you need to do to make sure that you're a well-rounded athlete. As I talked about recently with Jason Fitzgerald on strength running and the fact is, it's just, it's, it's all part of the training. You know, we like to think of the running as the training, but if you need strength, if you need foam rolling, if you need whatever little stretching, whatever little extra work to be your best self, then it's all part of the training. There's not two different categories. They're not the run training and then the extras. It's all part of the training and this is where it helps finding a coach who can help you sort through those things because we can't do it all, but those things that are most important for you to be your best running self. I think strength is one of those things that's for a marathon or table stakes in some form to be your best running self. You can get away with it for a while, perhaps without doing that, but at some point when you get to the edges of your potential, your aerobic potential, you're going to need the, the strength work to get those finer points or the, the deeper goals on your list. And there are people that aren't willing to do that, that sit here without their goals. Yeah, and I would say um, not just within the season, but also like for the race day experience itself. Um, coming in, you know, bringing all those one percents to the actual race itself. So whether you're thinking about fuel, um, whether you're thinking about what you're going to eat that, that the morning of, um, I think it, when it comes to like having the, the proper expectations, which filter down into the proper plan, um, I want to go to this New York runner. Um, so it sounds like y'all are, you know, had the conversation around time, but as far as New York's concerned, I've run it. I was pretty fit that year. Um, uh, definitely fit enough to go well under four hours, but I ran a 403 that day. And the reason why is because, and I remember thinking about this, I, I ran four hours, three minutes in the marathon, but when I left the condo that morning, it was four and a half hours before I started the race. I spent more time getting across that start line than I did actually running the event itself. And so someone going into New York, um, the 1%, there's a lot of them. Um, knowing exactly like what bus or um, train ride you're going to take down, then how to get on the ferry, how you're going to respond when those crowds are just pushing in and everyone's got that anxious energy. So being prepared for all of that and planning for all of that is part of the experience. When I got to the start line, I was frustrated, angry, and just worn out. I, I, I did not, Steve used to say in a talk, uh, prepare for the unexpected. I didn't prepare for the unexpected that day. Like my mind was just... Uh, a floppy noodle by the time I went across that start line. I even broke up. I was with three people. There were three of us together, together all morning for about four hours. Then I found out we're all in different corrals and they're literally about a mile apart. The directions they can send you in New York were just overwhelming. Um, and so going through all those layers and details um, are huge. That's just like the mechanics 
of the race itself, like the practical, logical stuff that you can put down on paper. And then I'd say the psychological too. Um, I've said this before, um, um, and I don't want to recirculate content, but it's one of my favorite topics. But also preparing um, for the event itself, I always speak to what I call the good student athlete. Um, just because you train really hard, um, or the way I said it last time, the hardest workout in your entire season is 26.2 miles at MGP on race day. Um, so being prepared to suffer um, on race day, knowing that you're training and handling all those one percents leading up to it don't guarantee you anything. You still step into the ring and have to fight like crazy. So having the plan psychologically as well as all the little details leading up to the event itself. In Austin, I don't have to worry as much. I can roll out of my bed and get to downtown, but something like New York, there's a lot of layers um, of preparation and logistics that go into getting to that start line. You kind of segued us into our fourth, which is that lack of planning. It's okay. It's okay because I think they're related. It's, It's one of the things you have to do to get ready completely. There's the training elements, which includes the running, but also the strength, the recovery pieces, foam rolling, massage, sleep, whatever it may be. But then it's also then making sure you're controlling the controllables related to the race itself. So our fourth thing was not planning for those things or not having a plan for your race itself. I mean, we, we at Rogue basically help our athletes create race plans where they're dialing in on pace they're going to run each mile how they're going to plan the nutrition during the race, how they're going to approach that race mentally using mantras, how they tap into their purpose in the race itself, all those things so that when you show up on that start line, hopefully you can just execute the plan. And I think a lot of people show up at the start line of a marathon, particularly thinking, well, we'll see how it goes today. (laughs) When... (laughs) 26.2 miles is not a we'll see how it goes kind of experience if you want to get the most out of it. We've talked about it a lot in episodes here about race planning and knowing and having the expectations for that day dialed in like you talked about with New York. That's as much of the equation for getting to your goal as it is anything else because there's weather. Certainly you can't control that. There's people around you and the chaos of the crowds. You can't control that. But you can control your plan. You can control your nutrition you take on that day. You can't control what you wear, when you get to the start line, how you deal with the chaos, what you do in New York sitting for those several hours once you get to the the start area before you actually cross that start line, right? So there's all those layers, and I think some people are unwilling either because they're lazy or because they don't want to face the impending doom, so to speak, of the race, that they just don't dot those I's, cross those T's in their preparation before they show up. Yeah, I'm not a details guy. (laughs) I get about 80 to 90% of it right. And then so, yeah, it's just extra energy. And I think that when it comes to big goals, because, again, I keep, you know, I want to like always tie it back to the ultimate topic, and it's why people don't hit their goals. Um, I think I'm going to have to learn and know I have to uh, build the practice of covering all of those little details when it comes time to really hit my ultimate A goal. Um, 
because without it, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want people to not show up with hope, but if they show up with hope only, mm. <laughs> not a very good plan. No, you, hope is not a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I had that, I've had that conversation recently with someone. All right. These last two things, we got about 15 minutes. Last two things kind of go together. And these were the two things you teased in the last episode telling me that, hey, you'll like to talk about these two things. And I think there's a lot of meat here. So we'll, we'll, we're going to team up both together. I'll let you start because these were from your list. But basically, a couple more reasons why people don't get their goals is, A, they aren't willing to go to the well, go deep. Or B, they can't actually do it for whatever reason. So, tee tee up both of these things. Tee up them both? Okay. Yeah. Great. So, on the won't go to the well, I think I look at that through the lens, and we could even tie it back to that, you know, you know, talented athlete that we talked about last time where where times in and of themselves can be impressive. And so, if someone is extremely talented, then they can lean back on their laurels, and they can, you know, trained or not trained, uh, willing to hurt or not willing to hurt, um, they can still lay down a pretty impressive time just because of where they fall on, you know, the bell curve. Like there are only a certain amount of people that go under three hours. So if you're someone that can run under three hours pretty easily, just cause you're, you're gifted or you ran in college or something, um, then you, you may be that athlete that, you know, that, that won't go to the well. Uh, there is a painful um, space that's required to find your ultimate potential. I think reaching our highest goal, um, whether it be in life or specifically within the context of running that we're talking about now, you're going to have to go through some layers of pain, and some people just don't want to go there. And then I think as I was sort of just chewing on this topic, I came up with a uh, or not necessarily came up, but just it hit me. There's, there's, there's two parts to it. And I've seen it both in myself. There was a time where I just didn't want to hurt that bad. And I had to will myself to, to basically mentally accept that it's going to hurt. And are you ready to deal with the hurt? Um, so it was like this trying to go to the well. And I came up with this idea of like, can't go to the well. I think there is a there's a degree of pain that we're not ready to deal with in the physical space um, because perhaps we haven't even felt that much pain in other areas of life. I think our adversity that we face opens us up to a, an entirely new level of motivation um, that's really hard to tap into if we haven't uh, faced challenges or crisis within our life. I think when I was 25, it was a form of pain. It's an easy one to share, but... Um, I remember graduating school, uh, pretty great student, always, you know, pretty successful academically. Um, and, and there were, and b- because of that, there was like a rubric there, there was, I always knew the guidelines, but then I got into my twenties and at 25, I'm like, what does it mean to be a good person? I had already had three different jobs by the time I was 25. And it was the first time that anyone in society would have looked at me and said like, this is just a millennial. It's bouncing around. Isn't very responsible. Doesn't do what they say. And I remember chewing on those words and letting that be somewhat of a motivating factor. Um, and so while it bothered me and it frustrated me and it fueled me in running, um, I think I can go to the well in other ways now because of things I've experienced since that time. 
And I just yesterday heard David Goggins, uh, who's a Navy SEAL. I've talked about him and Jocko Willink before on the podcast, but he was talking about the worst thing that his grandfather ever said to him being the best thing his grandfather ever said to him. He, his own grandfather, flesh and blood, when he was a young boy, told him, uh, you're a loser and you'll never amount to anything. And obviously it cut that little boy's psyche deeply. And he carried that pain to fuel himself into the Navy SEAL that we now see with huge pecs, crazy cut arms. He runs ultras. He's run bad water. His first 100-mile run, uh, he broke bones in his body. He shit all over himself. He peed blood. I mean, the ability to go to that, that's going to the well on a, on a level I don't even want to go to. Um, but where I'm trying to go with this point is instead of letting he, – he, he talked about the idea of like – Learn to get thick skin, learn to stay hard, and what I would add to it is is learn to take that pain, don't ignore it, don't pretend like it's not real, but learn how to channel it into something, and what, what better something than sports and fitness or self-improvement? So it's the dark energies that we sometimes want to avoid, like anger, frustration, um, sadness, those aren't things that we should run from. That make th- those, those layers of our lives, they make us human. They're as much human as happy, joy, peace, contentment. They, they make up the whole spectrum. It's like that yin and yang type approach. They make the spectrum of us being human. And instead of letting those things just turn into a cesspool and pull us down, I think something like running in the marathon, if we channel it there, we'll be able to go to the well in a, in a, in a whole new way that we never have before. And so the encouragement there is to Encourage athletes to take any pain. It's one of the greatest motivators in life. Take pain and channel it into your running and see what you get on the other side. All right. couple things here as I react. One, I want to talk about the won't go to the well point. Because I want people to understand or at least hear that for me as a coach, there's no judgment for somebody who says, hey, I don't want to suffer. There's no judgment if that's their decision. Where it gets complicated is when they say, I don't want to suffer, but I also want this goal that might, as I'm thinking about it, require suffering. Those things can't coexist. If you say, I don't want to suffer, fine. I would first recommend probably don't do the marathon because... (laughs) You're going to probably pick suffer. Pick a new sport. <laughs> yeah, pick a new sport maybe. But that's okay. Like, it's okay if you don't want to suffer. I'm not going to judge you for that. But if you come to me as your coach and you say, I don't want to suffer, or if it becomes evident that you're not willing to suffer, but you also want a goal that I know will require you to suffer, those things are incongruent. And we've got to find a way for you to be able to, to, to change that decision to say, look, I am willing to go there. What's that going to take? I think it depends on the person. For some, it's as simple as digging into the why. So if you do have that goal, let's dig into the why so that we can then f- use that as the the back door to this willingness to suffer, so to speak. So that's a point on won't go to the well. On can't, this is where I think it takes practice, just a lot of practice. I think at bats in races, whether they be marathon or shorter distances, is really critical. 
also at bats in workouts where you're put into a position to suffer. I get people all the time who started running in adulthood later in life, sometimes maybe, you know, after they turn 40 or something like that. And then, and maybe if they didn't play team sports or have a way to find suffering as a child, they just don't know. I've had somebody ask me, how is it supposed to feel when I'm at my limit? Because they just don't have that experience base in this type of suffering to educate them on what they can do and can't do and when they should pull back or not hold back. And so for those athletes, it's hard to describe. It's hard to say, well, it should feel this way because we all know there's layers to it that get really complex once you get into those dark places. And so for me with them, it's all about giving them opportunities to get into a place where they're quote unquote suffering so that they can discover and then maybe push them a little past that so that they can discover that there's more and then just for themselves gradually pull back those layers and then hopefully give them opportunities to run races where they have a plan that might put them on that limit so that they have to experience some discomfort and challenge that will teach them that they can suffer in ways that they didn't think they could. And so whether you come from an experienced suffering place or an inexperienced suffering place, I think a lot of getting through it is just experiences at bats, having those opportunities to face it and deal with it. But a part of facing it and dealing with it is having strategies for dealing with it. And that's where a coach or somebody who can help you on these things, I think is really critical because there are ways to face it that aren't, scary in my opinion you know i talk about it's simple all the time i talk about simply in races this whole idea of going fishing if you're running that race within a race and you're chasing that person ahead of you who happens to be wearing texas flag split shorts or whatever or the crazy yellow singlet you'll forget the pain in that pursuit that will then allow you on the other side once you get done to say, holy crap, I didn't think I could do that. So that's just one tiny little example when there's a whole bunch of them we've talked about. But putting those, developing that quiver of tools you can bring to bear in the suffering mode of running, whether it be fishing, counting is one I use, using mantras, visualization, dealing with the suffering in your mind and then actually experiencing it. There's a whole host of them that can help you become better so that the can't becomes can as it relates to going to the well. Yeah, when you brought up fishing, I know what you mean by it, um, in that we're fishing and, and, we're, and we're passing runners. But when I was preparing for this, I actually was um, thinking about this thought, like, you can go fishing for the demons, too. Oh. Like, imagine, like, you know, and, and there's a little bit of a danger here. Like, like the, the, the dark, I think the dark emotions... Um, for someone who who has poor mental health, it, this could go awry. So I'm not claiming to be a psychologist. I'm not trying to be anyone's counselor here, but I do think there is a way by which to channel negative energy and channel, um, you know, the the darker emotions into performance. And I started toying it with this, toying with it this year, and I think it's going to develop into a whole uh, perspective uh, on this topic in and of itself. I'd even love to get Steve's perspective on it. Like I think he could bring a lot to the table on this one, and he has before in conversations that I've had with him. Um, but I think there's a place for it. And I remember feeling so empowered, 
um, when you look at the dark, the darker side of emotions, and uh, instead of coming to a run and saying, "I hope the demons don't come," rather, first you move to that place of accepting that they come. They come in late stages of races, and then what if I proactively go seek them out? What if I go into the lion's den and hunt the lion itself instead of running from it? I think there's a there's a point at which our brain can turn. And we're no longer afraid of the demons, but we actually bend the demons to our own will. And that, to me, is a perspective of strength, swagger, um, excitement that now, yes, I'm going to suffer in the late stages of races, but I save it for that stage and I go hunting the demons down. And I can't, you know, I can't coach every single athlete through it, but there are some amazing conversations you get to have with athletes who understand this perspective and are willing to go there and sort of run from it. And I love the play on words here, not run from it like you're avoiding it, but run from it like it's a launch pad, like it's a springboard. I have a mantra that I've used before in races. When it hurts, push harder. Amen. Because one thing you find is that when you slow down in the middle of suffering, it often still <laughs> hurts like hell. <laughs> but sometimes if you push fast or push harder, it can still hurt. But if it's going to hurt either way, whether you go faster or slower, why not go faster and get it over with? But also sometimes it gets better magically because you have faced those demons. You have taken the bull by the horn, so to speak. And... It's just, it's weird the way the body works and the mind works in those type of situations. And so you just can't be afraid to go there because you just, you don't know until you do how you're going to respond, how it's going to play out. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. We often dwell on the what if negative as it relates to a race or a potential outcome. What if it doesn't go the way I think? What if it hurts and I shrink to that pain? What if I don't get the time I wanted? versus what if I face that pain and crush it anyway? What if it hurts more than it's ever hurt, but I still get my PR? What if we don't often frame the positive when, honestly, in my experience as a coach, the what if positive happens way more than the what if negative, to be honest. For those that go into the race prepared, having planned for it, controlling the things, have a goal that they believe in, right? So so believe in the positive outcomes, set your sights on those, and then go seek out the dark places, as you say. All right, final words, James, as we wrap this, this little mini-series. Oh, gosh, I just, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't hit their goals. And so it's fun trying to... Um, sit down and chew on every single angle and just one more encouragement to athletes to whether it's from the the first part of this or the second part um, identify which area you're in right now and then move forward with just that one don't try to take every single bullet point on the list and focus on all of them right now but find yours I, I do the same thing um, I'm, I'm coaching some athletes on Monday nights privately um, over at my apartment and one guy's just super obsessed with form and he wants to review all 10 mental cues that I gave him on proper running form. And I'm like, no, just pick the one. Once I taught you all 10, you know them. Just pick the one that you want to focus on on today's run. And I would say the same here. Look at your season. 
of training, your body of work, um, identify which one of these that we talked about resonates with you and you think could be a potential blocker or barrier to you succeeding. And then just try to exercise some of the stuff we've talked about in this one season. And next season, you get to look at another one. I love that. You know, and I would love to get examples. If people wanted to email in chris at roguerunning.com of the barrier they think is in their place, some context around that barrier, and it would be great to perhaps respond to some of those and coach a few people up if, if anyone had topics that resonated for them that may be a way to finish or continue this series so to speak and have another excuse to get you on but it's always a pleasure james love the banter and the riffing on this one really really appreciate it i know our audience does as well so we'll definitely have you back on whether it be on this topic or another topic and of course thanks to the audience for listening you can check out episode 132 which is part one of this now episode 36 part two And, of course, also check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.